Welcome to the Dietitian Connection podcast, a show about nutrition, dietitians, and their success stories. Through our conversations with nutrition leaders, we aim to inspire you, to connect you with like-minded colleagues, to innovate and push you out of your comfort zone, to create robust debate, to encourage lifelong learning, and to empower you to create more impact as a dietitian. Welcome to the Dietitian Connection podcast. I am Dr. Joanna McMillan and I'm your host for today's episode. Now, I'm sure many of you are aware sustainable diets are a hot topic, not only in our world of nutrition, but also amongst the general public. And in today's podcast, we're going to explore all things consumer behaviour, diet and sustainability. But before we get started with my guest today, a very special thank you to our sponsor, who is Meat and Livestock Australia. Thank you very much for supporting this podcast. Now, I'm very pleased to be sitting down with not one, but two guests today who bring us some very different perspectives. Uh, The first is Howard Parry Husbands. He is the CEO of Pollinate, one of Australia's leading strategic consultancies, and he's an expert in market research. Howard is also a director of Social Soup, Australia's leading influencer platform, and a non-executive director of Planet Arc, an Australian environmental NGO focused on behaviour change. And as a passionate but pragmatic environmentalist, Howard is slightly obsessed with how the Australian forestry sector can become a transformative force to deliver a sustainable society. And my second guest today is Dr. Brad Ridout. He is a principal research scientist with Australia's National Science Agency, the Commonwealth Scientific and Industrial Research Organisation, we all lovingly know as CSIRO. His expertise is in life cycle sustainability assessment in the agricultural and food sectors, which is used to address strategic challenges in relation to climate change, water scarcity, sustainable food systems and sustainable diets. His research is creating the main evidence base concerning the environmental impacts of dietary habits in Australia, which is very important. I feel this is what lots of people are talking about, that we need to be talking very specific about particular regions around the world. So welcome to the show, Howard and Brad. We do appreciate you sharing your wisdom with us today. Now, with the rising popularity of sustainability, and as we're all trying to become more environmentally aware, this is a very timely conversation. So let me bring you both in. Brad, I'll bring you in first with with a question. Tell us, what does your research tell us about how to make the Australian diet more sustainable? Well, thanks, Joe. It's great to be part of the conversation. You know, comparing the environmental impacts of different foods is not an easy thing to begin with because there's lots of different ways in which uh, food production impacts the environment. Of course, we're all thinking a lot about greenhouse gases at the moment, but there's water use and land use and fertilisers and pesticides. And some foods are a bit higher on one thing and lower than another. Other foods are lower on the first and higher on the other. And actually, the more different dimensions you build into the environmental assessment equation, the more it tends to blur the differences between individual foods. And of course, we want sustainable diets to be healthy as well. And we're looking at it all through the lens of the Australian food system, the way food is produced here, the environmental challenges we face in Australia and the way people eat and 
what public health nutrition challenges exist here. Um, but it, it's, it's not an easy equation because the different objectives tend to constrain each other. Um, hmm. What we do know from the research is that uh, nearly a third of the environmental impacts come from discretionary foods. And most people know that in Australia, on average, we eat far too many discretionary foods and not enough core foods. So if we were to cut back on the discretionary foods, we could or maybe do something beneficial for our health, but also uh, reduce the environmental burdens as well. But, you know, we can't just reduce all the discretionary foods. We need to top it up with some healthy core foods. And so, yeah, and and I understand from your work though that that doesn't necessarily bring environmental benefits, and this is where it starts getting really quite complex. Exactly, just eating the equivalent serves of um, core foods that are recommended in the dietary guidelines means that they tend to balance out with the with the reduction in the discretionary foods. We don't really uh, achieve a lot there, but if we start shifting food choices a bit. Our research shows that, yes, we can reduce the overall environmental burden by about 15%. Um, you know, the best quadrant or quarter of Australian adults are, are eating that way. Um, but 15% is great, but, um, you know, it's not going to solve all the problems. That's why it makes it such a <laughs> complex and difficult um, problem for us to solve and but it is important. I love that you're actually bringing in all of those different elements because too often that we hear it's just about greenhouse gases. And of course, that's not true at all. So simply to be assessing foods based on, you know, because we hear time and time again, let's just eat more plants, eat fewer animals because that reduces greenhouse gases. But of course, the system is much more complex than that, which is what I love about what you're doing with your research. Oh, of course. And I think this plant versus animal is, um, you know, not a healthy um, dichotomy to be creating in the first place. What what we do need is more core foods and less discretionary foods, that's for sure. But a lot of discretionary foods are made from plants. They're also made from animals. Actually, the same agricultural products can be turned into core foods or discretionary foods. We don't want to be getting in the way of people accessing and choosing and having a variety of core foods to choose from. And, uh, yes, you can choose selectively and reduce the environment overall burden of the diet by maybe about 15%. Um, and that's not um, insignificant, but um, we're going to have to look for the, uh, the bigger gains elsewhere, I believe. Yeah, and we'll, we'll come back to those. Let me, can I bring Howard into this chat? Howard, you, <laughs> you look at what drives consumers to make particular food choices. So I'm interested in hearing a little more there. So you talk about food choices being driven by value and values. So can you explain how that works and within the context of healthy, sustainable food choices? And how do we, well, how does this apply to us as dietitians working with clients one-on-one? -on -one? What can we really be doing there? Yeah, I mean, the the, um, the point Brad made there about it's not a healthy dichotomy is possibly a really good way to think about how the consumer approaches decision-making. And I'll touch on values and value in a minute, but I'd, I'd, I'd completely agree with Brad. There's there's no such thing as a healthy dichotomy. In fact, it's it's fair to say they're all false dichotomies, but the consumer loves the dichotomy because the, the science here of how people choose is pretty straightforward. And the science shows consistently that when... Common sense and science contradict or conflict. 
people always choose common sense. Science always loses. So we're hardwired as humans to look for this or that. Uh, and we don't recognize the complexity in a system. And I thought there's a wonderful point here about uh, Brad made the point, we want sustainable food to be healthy as well. And of course, the whole point is sustainability, as you said, Joe, it's not about being green or carbon. Sustainability is nothing more than recognizing we're currently unsustainable. The entire food system and consumer choices at the forefront of this <clears throat> needs to be reframed so that it is equitable, it is viable, and it delivers a bearable outcome for life on earth. People, when they make choices, of course, are driven by value in terms of like, is it good value? How much am I getting for my dollars, as it were, in Australia? Okay. The, the issue with that, of course, is, is a quantity to that. We've, we've been almost taught by, let's call it capitalism, which for those who are interested, did win and is currently the dominant force everywhere. And that's what it is. Anyway, the point is we work in a system whereby we, the more we get for our money, the more value we feel like we've got. It doesn't seem to make any difference at all that we actually don't need more and more, that it won't make us happier. And one would say that it could even be a driver of some of the reasons why we have an obesity crisis. But value here is seen as, can I get more bang for my buck? Values, of course, are quite different. Values help us to determine what is important, what is more important than something else. Luckily, there's a thing called universal values. There's a chap called Schwarz, brilliant um, scientist. He came up with universal values. You can get it for free, the Common Cause Foundation. If you Google that, produce a little map with all of the universal values. Great thing about universal values, every single person on the planet, irrespective of culture, age, whatever, adheres to the same set of values. We see the same truth. Okay, keeping it really simple, some of us value things like universalism, which is um, respect for nature or equality. That's a morality. So for yeah. those people, values are, I want to choose something that's more sustainable. Others of us are more driven by wealth and power. So for those of us, it's like, what can I get? Sustainability doesn't fit neatly there. This is where things like waste come in. Waste works well as a sustainability message if you're into power and wealth because you don't want to throw away money. You don't want to lose pay. You don't want to waste. That's, that, that goes against my value set. So if you're talking to that more, let's call it traditional mindset or political, it would be a more liberal mindset or neoliberal. It doesn't matter. There's nothing wrong with it. We all recognize the need for power. Nobody likes to waste. If you're going for a more progressive universalism collective mindset, then it's more about respect and equality. Either way, the waste message works. So there are ways to cut across the tangle of values and value and, and actually have a more universal message. Uh, but generally speaking, it's looking at the system, re reduce waste as opposed to individual choice. My comment was only about my husband always calls me very Scottish when I'm trying to reduce my food waste and I get annoyed with having to throw the bread from yesterday in the bin because he's brought a, brought, bought a fresh loaf this morning. And I, and, uh, I say not to be Scottish. I am being um, uh, environmentally friendly and trying to reduce my food waste. So, so, Brad, that brings me to, back to you then about um, why is the impact of dietary change small compared to the production and waste reduction strategies that you talk about. So you talk about the most important things we can ultimately do is actually eat less. So we eat what we need and that we reduce our food waste. So um, why is the impact of dietary change small compared to these things? Well, dietary change is at right the far end of the food system and we can only go out and buy the things that are available and there to be sold unless we're growing, you know, veggies or whatever at home as well. So we're naturally constrained. I mean, all foods have impacts and some foods may have a bit higher or lower impacts than others, but there's no foods with no impacts. There's barely a handful of foods that are 
climate neutral. So as a, uh, I think too much burden has been put on the shoulders of the consumer as though the consumer can solve the sustainability problem. There's only so much the consumer can do by the options that are available. I mean, it's like uh, the transport options that are available to you, the food options available to you, the, the power electricity grid. Uh, you know, we all share these assets. Um, and, you know, it's really not possible to choose any diet, which is carbon, any sensible diet, which is carbon neutral in Australia. It's just not possible, which means something more has to happen in the in the production system. And, and there, fortunately, there's massive potential for uh, technology, for production system changes, different practices to be adopted or, or whatever. Um, the scope of the uh, what can be achieved there may be 10 or 100-fold improvements compared to the small improvements we can obtain by changing our diet. But the one thing consumers can do, and this is where, as consumers, we need to uh, get perhaps real and not be distracted by the fine details and, and, and miss the large and the obvious, is this matter of food waste, which you mentioned, because by the time we handle food, it's contained or it's accrued all of the environmental burdens, all of the greenhouse gas emissions, all the fertiliser use, all the transportation and everything that's got to us. And then Howard mentioned that no one likes to feel, everyone feels bad about wasting food, of course, but most people, everybody wastes food to some degree. And the survey suggests about a third of the food we buy ultimately gets thrown away. It's a difficult thing to quantify, but that's the rule of thumb. So practical things that can be done to avoid food waste far outweighs the things we can achieve by, you know, eating this, not eating that, whatever. And that, of course, applies. I mean, that's our own food waste. What about the, the waste, you know, all the way along the food production line from the farm to us buying the food? So there's a lot that can be done, I, I, I hear. from True, although in countries like uh, Australia, the bulk of the food waste is at the household or restaurant, the end of the, the food use end of the chain. Uh, you know, maybe in places where they don't have uh, cold chains and refrigeration and good quality storage and, you know, pests in their warehouses and things like this, there's a lot of waste leading up to the consumer. But, you know, it's really in, in, in developed countries, advanced countries, the food waste problem is primarily with the householder or the or the or the restaurant owner or whatever. Howard, jump in there. What, what yeah, are you I, I was there? going to build on. I, I rarely has consumer research and CSIRO science been so beautifully aligned uh, with what Brad <laughs> said. Uh, look, the, the the fact that we've 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 grown up with commodity change or, or value change or global supply chains, and and there's some implicit thought that there's a linearity to this. There's not. It needs to be a circularity. So to Brad's point, we need to redesign the entire food system so that there is no waste. We can actually design waste out of the system. If you link the consumer end of the equation back to the primary production end or, or, and so on, you, you can actually design waste completely out of the system. I love Brad's point, by the way, too much bulk or too much burden, rather, has been um, put on the consumer regarding sustainability. The research we, we've got shows quite clearly the consumer has got guilt fatigue. They are exhausted by constantly trying to work out what's good for them, what's bad for them, and, and what about this stuff? What about me, my body shape, my life goals, and our oh, sustainability and animal welfare? I, it's just they're buried under the burden of responsibility. Why can't we just give them better choices? 
and 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 I think here the consumer has a role to play because they put pressure on the system, but they're very disconnected and they're very disempowered. I should say at this point, so a lot of the primary producers, the system needs to work together. We all need to get together and accept it's unsustainable right now. The consumer would like to make easy choices that are better for them nutritionally and ideally also more sustainable. And then we work backwards from that and go, okay, let's redesign a food system that can deliver that. And I know that sounds massive, but the change needs to be holistic. So, Howard, though, have we got a risk at the moment? Because we're already starting to see some unpack claims or media claims made about particular foods. So, you know, for example, by this lab created meat made from plant based. So I think that plant based has become a kind of sustainability halo over particular foods. Have this instead of meat or have a plant based milk instead of a dairy milk. And these pressures are being put on consumers and consumers are often making these choices believing that they're doing them the right thing. But of course, now that we're understanding the complexity um, from Brad's research, um, are, are they actually being misled? So we're seeing in the same way that they've been driven to wrong foods that have a health halo, are we now seeing this kind of sustainability halo? Very interesting. Are they being misled? Well, there's a there's a Senate inquiry going on exactly that with plant-based um, meat labelling. And um, un- unfortunately, the truth of the matter is the consumer applies simple heuristics. And so if they see a picture of a pig, they buy it and they're, they're quite a lot of them think that it's bacon, even if it says on in, in fine print underneath it, plant-based bacon. Um, the, the, the evidence is clear. Consumers are confused. Are they being misled? Mm, that's an interesting point, not for me to engage in that. There's certainly evidence the consumer is um, not always able to discern whether it is an animal or a meat product with current labeling. Okay, let's take that a step further though. Are they able from the packaging to work out if something is sustainable or not? Almost entirely not. (laughs) And what happens here is they're using heuristics or shortcuts. Fair trade, gotta be good for me then. So I shall eat an entire bar of chocolate. Why? Because I'm helping to save a Peruvian indigenous tribe. I mean, it's it's quite bizarre the trade-offs that we make as consumers. And it's basically how much guilt can I assuage And I think that there is very, very little being done to help the consumer choose a more sustainable product. They're generally speaking single-minded, not caged eggs or organic. And people use these heuristics. Whether or not they're actually um, fully sustainable in terms of delivering sort of a a social justice equity outcome or even a long-term outcome for, as Brad pointed out, water versus climate, that's just really currently far too hard. Yeah, so Brad, I think it's worth just further explaining um, your thoughts on why we can't really compare. Actually, we can't even compare one apple that's grown in one region with an apple grown elsewhere or an animal grown for meat or or to give us milk in one region compared to another. Never mind across food categories. So perhaps explain a bit more why your research is very much focused on Australian diets rather than comparing one food with another. Well, you've got to put it in the context of the diet. So swapping one food or another, does it really make any um, meaningful difference to the footprint of the overall diet? And so too swapping this food for another because most foods don't contain the same nutrition. What does that mean in the context of the whole diet? Because some nutrients we're lacking and others we are plentiful and ubiquitous in the food system. So really to be meaningful, it's got to be, putting the context uh, of the whole diet and, of course, using the metrics and so forth that are relevant to Australia. I mean, comparing two foods, an apple here, an apple there, your example, I mean, technically you can compare them, um, but it's an expensive life cycle assessment study. You have to study the specific production system, 
you know, how, how many times did the tractor go up and down and, uh, you know, all these sorts of different things. And then you can compare the two systems, but you compare them on a profile of environmental indicators because the environment is not one thing. Now, the complexity can't, and, and, and life cycle assessment is uh, used in this way to help companies understand, is this change in my production system, a change in supplier going to make things more sustainable or not? Uh, but the problem is making claims of overall sustainability because it, most things, the profile isn't lower on everything. It might be a bit higher on greenhouse, lower on water, higher on pesticide, lower on this. You know, So how do you weigh up achieving a benefit for one environmental attribute and, a, and, and, and shifting a trade-off with another? Uh, and that's where it then comes down to personal values in which means that it's very difficult to make claims that something is overall better for the environment. You can say something has a lower water scarcity footprint or a lower, um, you know, whatever, treating the environmental indicators one at a time, but it's when you have a profile of environmental indicators, it's hard to compare two things because you end up inevitably having to give some sort of judgment. How much emphasis do you give to improving this if it means making something else worse? Yeah, Howard. Okay. We mustn't forget as well that we live in a, um, a society in Australia where we don't have any significant policy settings around sustainability. So it's incredibly hard for industry and business and um, professionals such as dietitians and consumers to actually make the choice. If the government uh, was bold enough to actually make a decision and say, you know what, we think carbon and water are the two sustainable priorities, then at least, even though there's a trade-off in there, at least it would be possible now to say, okay, well, we can minimize our impact on those two criteria. And, and I know that's a simplistic way of looking at it, but there are very few policy settings. And therefore, we're in this bizarre impossible tangle of having to look at all the trade-offs, as you rightly said, Joe, between an apple and an apple, let alone an apple and an orange, let alone an orange and a chocolate bar. And, and it's it's an almost impossible task. Yeah. And so, and it does seem that part of this might come back then to looking at, at agricultural and food production along the system um, management and, and what happens along that food chain. So perhaps you know, from an environmental perspective, an apple is best grown in this region where its footprint is then less because of whatever reason. So exactly. I think one of the one of the, the discussions often about Australia is that there is land that is suitable for animal farming that is not suitable for crops. Likewise, there are key areas that are fabulous for growing, um, I don't know, uh, uh, wheat or growing um, beans or growing, you know, chia, whatever it might be. So Brad, does part of this come down to trying to actually look at the agricultural system as a whole and having better management of that system? Well, I think that um, that uh, the economy actually sorts out that problem to a large degree because uh, farmers will make the best use of their land. If, if the land's best use for grazing sheep, then only a silly farmer would try and um, produce crops on it because, uh, you know, it's not as suitable for that purpose and it's not going to be as productive and... and uh, and uh, profitable. Same too, 
I mean, the land that's suitable for cropping is almost always cropped because uh, cropping is a higher value activity and, and more so for horticulture is higher value again. And the thing is, in Australia, we are, are starting to put values on our environmental resources. So water in Australia is traded so that it gets used for the highest value-adding uh, applications, which is usually in, in, in horticulture or vegetable production and so forth, not used to irrigate, uh, you know, pastures. That would be a, um, for, that would be a very uh, inefficient use of, of those resources. So, you know, some of the things the market does um, sort out already because farmers are uh, largely um, self-sustaining in this country with not too many subsidies and so they have to be efficient. They have to make wise choices. They have to use their resources wisely and efficiently. But it does suggest for the consumer and for us as dietitians advising people on what to eat to be more sustainable, we have to eat what was grown on that land, not sort of try to insist that this farmer shouldn't be producing whatever animal product it was because we should all be eating more of this food. But actually we have to, this is, comes back to your argument about we've got to look at the food that's produced in Australia and that is the food that then that is most sustainable for us to eat. Yeah, well, Howard, you have, um, you, I've got these words that you said you recommend thinking about the challenge of sustainable diets as a diamond. Can you explain that a bit more? What does that mean in terms of health yeah, totally. diets and for dietitians to apply this thinking? So we did. We did. We were very fortunate to to um, have access to a global data set. So we had the UK's consumer data on food choice. We had uh, uh, the the USA and Canada, Mexico, uh, Brazil, um, all of Europe, China, Mexico. I mean, just about everywhere, basically Australia as well. And we looked at all these different data sets, and they were just literally what's important to consumers. And we found that for most consumers, for instance, price and value was the number one driver of choice uh, for most food. And, and if you were choosing um, foods, let's say it's red meat, you, you might reduce the amount of red meat you eat predominantly on the basis of either health concerns or on the basis of price. Okay. What we also found was that people were more likely to cut out certain foods completely on the basis of more morality or more ethical driven issues. So you might become a vegan or a vegetarian on the basis of sustainability concerns or say animal welfare so what we found with this is sort of pragmatic choice around the sort of everyday and dialing up or down what i can afford in terms of discretionary versus um core foods if you like but we found that your fundamental shift in diet was driven more by your morality your ethics is it sustainable uh, or am i concerned about the animal welfare issues or other um, uh, bigger system impacts now, what's interesting is we're increasingly finding that those are lining up. And there's a great quote we got from a focus group with a young lad in Sydney, as it was. And he was actually talking about fast food at the time. And he said, and I'll quote, there are 100 reasons for becoming a vegetarian, but you only need one. Once you've become a vegetarian, you stack the other 99 on top. And what we're seeing is an alignment. As a consumer, I've, I've reached the point where I've got guilt fatigue. Everything's bad for me. It's all too hard. So what I do instead is I go, right, that one over there. It's affordable. It's natural. It's sustainable. Boom. And, and as, long, as long as it's all lined up, I now adopt that new, let's call it healthy habit. And I'm very happy about that. 
So ultimately for us as dietitians, though, what really begs the question there and where we are involved, I guess, is then in making sure that consumers have the right information. Because I would, I was, I was itching to jump in there with, uh, <laughs> with challenging the thoughts on is this food more nutritious than that food or should I be making that food choice for, and the same applies to sustainability issues. So Brad, back to you, you know, that's ultimately what is, what should dietitians be recommending? If we care about nutrition, obviously we want people to make, and we don't want people to trade off nutrition, thinking they're doing the right thing for the environment. And I'm worried at the moment that people are often making the wrong food choices, thinking it's healthier and it's often not. And I would argue that's certainly the case for eating fewer animal foods. Um, but also in terms of sustainability, they're, they're possibly getting the wrong messages. So they don't have the information there to make the right choices. So what would your advice be to dietitians with the information we have today and based on your research, what can we be advising clients and for those of us that work in public health arena to reduce the environmental impact of the Australian diet specifically? Yeah, well, I, I think that the number one thing that dietitians need to have their radar up for is people who want to avoid certain core foods because of sustainability concerns, but they're actually losing nutrition, nutrients from their diet. And so that some sustainable diet choices could actually be compromising uh, diet quality. I think that's where dietitians can give uh, very expert advice. And I think dietitians can also give practical advice about avoiding food waste. Now, I know it's not a exciting and sexy and marketed and advertised sort of uh, glamorous um, affair, but, um, you know, practical things like storing food, understanding best before dates and things like this, and, and even shopping, creating a list and checking the pantry before you leave, not getting there and thinking, oh, do I have this? And then you come home, you've got more than you need, uh, especially perishable. Because one thing we all need in Australia is to eat more vegetables. That's the core food group that we are down on the most. But it's also one of the most wasted uh, types of food is, is vegetables because they're perishable. Um, um, the discretionary food, you could put some of those uh, things in the, in the pantry and they'll last, uh, you know, decades potentially. I don't know. Um, but <laughs> I just threw all the veggies that were in the bottom of my fridge yesterday into a soup for precisely that reason because I get so annoyed when I... Well, what to make with things... What to make with things that are maybe nearing their end of useful life? Um, you know, this is not about fancy, sophisticated optimizations of diets and so forth, but it's practical how-to uh, kind of actions that can actually make a very real difference. And as Howard said, it can save you money as well. So the uh, in, in inherent motivation or benefit from avoiding food waste to start with, particularly when, you know, some food prices are rising and some people might be, um, if they're trying to buy, you know, healthy fruits and vegetables, uh, you know, they can be quite expensive at some times of the year. For sure. So ultimately, as dietitians, we can help with advice as to how to reduce your food waste, but also to buy what you need and eat what you need. So portion guidance. Howard, how on earth do we turn that into an exciting, sexy message that people listen to and want it's to a do? Joy. 
The joy, the joy of food. What's <laughs> happened? When did food become a, a an Excel spreadsheet exercise of how much can I afford and will Johnny eat it? Oh, and Indigo's become vegetarian and oh, bloody hell. It's just, you know, what food is so much more than its nutritional some part. The, the nip is not what's in the can. Okay. And I think that we've forgotten that food has a cultural resonance. I mean, I've got Italian and Greek friends. Trust me food and the need to eat it <laughs> it means a lot to to my italian and greek friends because it's 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 the it's the nature of culture and sharing i don't think there's a culture on the planet that doesn't have social norms based around sharing food it's the number one way we actually um, break down bigotry and barriers towards other cultures is through their food if, if we if we think that food is simply the sum total of its nutritional parts or, or some trade-off between diet coke and chocolate cake we're completely missing the point and i think that the first thing we can do as dietitians is to help people to to enjoy food but they everybody individually has their own goals and they're going to be very different and the fact that they're so different means we're never going to have one holistic message we won't have a one size fits all when it comes to even portion control or even to an extent waste although we can all waste less to Brad's point but what we can do is is to help help each and every person from a dietitian perspective say well what are your what are your needs what are your eating goals what are your nutritional goals and then and then let's not make this hard let's align that with actually this is a more sustainable choice what what do you care about what do you want to see okay well these these choices and these behaviors will actually lead to better behaviors and i think we can do that we can absolutely help people to enjoy food i'm fond of saying we've forgotten much more than we've learned our grandparents weren't stupid when the vegetables started to turn a bit, they turned it into ratatouille or soup and they stored it. Okay, they 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 preserved things, they pickled things. COVID was an explosion of everybody getting to sourdough again. Again? <laughs> again? What do you mean? We had to relearn how to bake bread. Why? Because we couldn't buy it easily down the road. We were rattling around at home. We, we've spent so much effort in contemporary society putting a currency and a value on time. And we've forgotten how to spend time wisely. And And if we spend more time looking at food going... I can spend time in the kitchen with my family. I can spend time turning this food that would otherwise be wasted into something valuable like tomorrow's ratatouille or a nice lasagna. My goodness, we'll get so much more drive out of food. We'll waste less and we'll probably end up nutritionally in a happier and frankly healthier place. So it, we've just we've just got to challenge some of those fundamental rules. It's not about convenient. It's about the joy of food. I couldn't agree more. I often talk about that, that we've kind of lost the skills of our grandmothers and mothers that that knew how to budget for food, buy food and make it last. Um, so yeah, that's a really nice message to finish on. I think it's very clear it is about portion size, eating appropriately, limiting food waste and bringing back the joy and pleasure in food. What a nice way to finish this podcast. It is complex and I think that is just a final message to make sure that we are not making, we don't need to make food choices based on these environmental concerns at the moment. If we just look at the, 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 that simple message, eat less, Reduce your eat appropriately, not necessarily reduce your portion size and uh, limit your food waste. What a great way to end. My thank you to my guests, Brad, and to Howard. Thank you so much for joining me today. Um, we could keep talking all afternoon, but we will have to call it to a halt. And thanks again to Meat and Livestock Australia for supporting our podcast today. We will see you all next time. If you'd like to support the Dietitian Connection podcast, please leave a review and a rating on the Apple Podcasts app. Tell us what you thought of this episode, what you learnt, and share your guest requests for us to consider for future episodes. We value hearing from you, and we really appreciate your feedback. So please, please 
hit that review button.